Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Shia Riggins describes herself as an activist, a mama, and a truth teller. It's her art that lets her be all those things. Shire's work is rooted in stories that are hard to tell. She started drawing portraits of gun violence victims after the six-year-old boy King Carter was shot and killed in Miami in 2016. Later, she painted a mural completely made up of names of gun violence victims. It's up to more than 400 names. She also makes art about culture, the culture she sees around her. She created a series of sculptures exploring hair braiding in the black community. The pieces depict resistance and empowerment. Shire's the artist-in-residence at Oolite Arts in Miami Beach, where she recently won a social justice award for her work. Today, she's here with us. Shire, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here um, and to really talk about your work, which is both beautiful and interesting and important, and it's not always that you get all those things lined up in, the, in that order, right? Right. Um, your, your artist name? Is Vanta Black. Absolutely. As I can tell, Vanta Black is the blackest black. <laughs> yes. Tell black me, AF. Tell me, tell me that. Tell me where that came from. Because we had, you know, we've had artists here who have their their artist names, tag names, street names. Where did mm-hmm. where did the idea come from to to bring Vanta Black into the picture? Well, black is my favorite color. And uh, the the stories that I tell are rooted in blackness. Mm-hmm. And when Vanta Black was discovered, I was like that's me. I want that to be me. And I just adopted that name because this is an extension of myself. Right, right. It's that material slash paint that uh, it almost seems to disappear to black, which is wild. Yes, yes. It's it's almost like you can't see. And there is something about embrace. Is that part of like also embracing like blackness and black culture and kind of saying like, I'm going to be the blackest black. I'm going to be my true self here, my full self? Absolutely, and I'm going to tell black stories about black people and black culture. And uh, so I, I felt like Vanta Black was for me. Right, I, like, I just want to call you that for the rest of the show, but Shire is such a beautiful name, I can't. Thank you. I can't avoid that. My mother's gonna love that. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to mom, is she was still with us? One time for mama, yes she is. All right. So talk to me about your work because I, you know, particularly I think about this portrait series and, you know, we have a lot of artists on the show and we all, we a lot uh, often talk about that moment, right? That kind of crystallizes what an artist finds himself focusing on, like a before and after moment, right? An mm-hmm. inflection moment. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that moment for you that led to this, this idea of like really using your art to, to address social issues? You know, I've, I've always been an artist. I was born an artist is what I tell people. I've never wanted to be anything else. And before I could express myself verbally, I was expressing myself visually. How, like how? What do you, when you say you've always been an artist and you express yourself first visually, what does that mean? If I have a strong feeling about something, I can't verbalize it. I will doodle, I'll write, I'll, I'll do whatever. I'll express these feelings visually. Hmm. And it's it started that way when I was very young because I had I struggled with expressing myself and expressing my emotions verbally, and so I would use art as an outlet, and I continue to use art as an outlet. Whatever happens to me or happens around me, I retreat to my practice, and I have to express myself that way. 
I'm curious what that looked like because, you know, sometimes, you know, I've, I've heard the cases where parents really will freak out. The kid mm-hmm. isn't, does, you know, maybe, uh, like, how did, how did, were you acting out? And was art, did somebody discover early on that, like, oh, she can kind of draw her feelings? How it, did- it was exactly that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm from St. Louis. So uh, growing up there, I would act out through my mother's nail polish. I would just express myself all over her furniture. Oh, no. And she did. That sounds like I painted all over mom's furniture I with my did. nail polish. And, you know, you couldn't get it out. And so, you know, we've had conversations since then. And huh. she's like, oh, it makes sense now. And, you know, I I remember after we moved here to Miami in the late 80s, I had a teacher in elementary school, Miss Pinko, one time for Miss Pinko. She recognized that art was something that I really liked, and I had potential there. God, so it's she always nurtured a teacher. It. It's, it's always a teacher. It's always a teacher always. in an artist's life, that, mm-hmm. that whether it's early on or later, at some point, who just steps in and, and says, I see something in you, and I, I believe enough in you to do it. Absolutely, because my mother is in the medical field, so that's where her brain operates, you know? Hmm. And so she wasn't she wasn't suited to nurture my practice. So I'm so thankful that Miss Pinkham stepped in because she gave my mom like a route to follow. Oh, and was that a was that a, a struggle for for was that a contention point with you guys? Absolutely, up to that point? absolutely. It was a contentious point because my mother wanted me to be successful. She mm-hmm. was raising four children when we moved here, and wow. she was getting her her nursing degree from the University of Miami, and she wanted to make sure that I could support myself, that we all could. Wow, your mom had a path. Yes. I mean, you guys moved here when you were young? Yes. And she was in nursing school at yes. UM, and she's raising four kids? Yes, I don't know how she did it. And, you know, being a parent now, we have conversations about, oh, my gosh, now everything that you said to me makes sense. Mm. So I'm trying not to perpetuate that legacy. But, you know... She knew that this is what my daughter wants to do, mm. and I'm going to have to support it no matter what. Wow. You know, um, in 2020, we really had heart-to-heart conversations about my journey in becoming an artist because she asked me to actually come help paint the mural, say their names, mural at the Bakehouse Art Complex. And I remember when she asked me, she was like, I'm going to come help you. And I was like, uh, what? Wow. You know, and she was serious about it. So she came at in uh, the height of the summer and sat out there and painted with me. And to this day, it's really hard to wrap my mind around. And I remember when we were on the way there, <clears throat> I was like, Mom, are you, you, you sure you want to go out here and, and help me paint? And she was like, yeah. How old your mom? Uh, I mean, without giving away, give her generational. Put me in generational. Um, in the heat, Miami heat. In the Miami heat. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mother, she she looks a lot younger than she is. <laughs> I'm 44, so I'll just say that. Okay, and, let's leave it there. Yeah, we'll leave it there. <laughs> and, you know, she, she came out there, you know, in 2020, you know, uh, we a lot of people weren't going outside, and she wanted to come help me do that. And she had never really supported my practice that way before. Mm. So... It was the kind of moment that we needed, and it it still helps ground me in my practice. Well, let's talk about that piece she helped you with because I think it really became one of the iconic pieces and one of the one of the pieces that really uh, 
spread your voice out, not just here in Miami, but I think beyond. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that piece, the Say Their Names piece. Is that mm -hmm. the one we're talking about? Yes, yes. So it is a text-based mural. It is on the backside of the Bakehouse Art Complex in Wynwood Norte. Mm -hmm. It's adjacent to I-95. And it includes uh, 541 names of victims of gun violence. And, uh, 541? Because at the last names. time we were just doing our homework, it was in the 200s. So you've yes. continued to, to because, add Twitter. Yes, I, because I had done a few interviews about the work. And at the time, it was at like 250 to 350. And ultimately, it, it ended at 541. Amazing. And um, Heartbreaking heartbreaking and you know these these stories should be told mm -hmm. and um i wanted people to to really see the magnitude of what's happening in the united states and the wall itself is about 300 feet long and when i decided to, to do a mural i just wanted to express myself outside because we were all on lockdown Right. This is 2020. This right? is 2020. This is right after the murder of George Floyd in late May, May 25th. And I was like, I have all these feelings about what's happening across the country. And I need other people to feel what I feel. Mm -hmm. And to decide to do a text-based mural is not very common because it's it's not very catchy. There, there aren't a lot of vivid colors. The color palette is very limited. And I did all that with intention because I wanted you to focus on the names and the amount of names that you see on this wall. And I worked on it from November. No, I worked on it from July until December of 2020. So six months. Yeah. And um, why was that important to you? Why why is that important to you? The names themselves, that the names be. Uh, even even though the names get added on to when it becomes a, it almost becomes an avalanche, you know, this mm -hmm. heartbreaking avalanche, this infuriating avalanche of names. Why were names important for you in the expression of that artwork? I think because in my conversations with family members and loved ones of people who had been uh, murdered, mm -hmm. they wanted their loved ones to be remembered. And they wanted you to focus on who that person was and not what happened to them or what you think they may have done. And um, I led with those intentions. And the wall is really high, but I didn't add the names past maybe about 10 feet because I wanted people to actually be able to physically touch the names mm. because I've, I've noticed in doing the portrait work that people like to touch. They need that, that, that tactile connection to this name. And hey, the mural is called Say Their Names. Yeah. And I, I wrote it in English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole because I'm speaking to the community here. Because there are victims from all different backgrounds and cultures and economic statuses. And I, I really wanted to speak to our community about what, what's happening in our community. Those names came from just this community, or did they come from outside, or is it? They're from predominantly South Florida, mm -hmm. and as as the mural grew, names started to be added because people were reaching out to me uh, through my social media, through mm -hmm. my email, on the phone, and people would drive up. 
Um, I had a family who was from uh, Minnesota. They happened to be in the neighborhood and they had me add their loved one's name. So it grew in in the moment. And um, I started with names that I knew from the series of portraits that I started in 2016. Mm-hmm. And then it went from there because a lot of the victims, I hadn't done portraits of them. And some of the victims whose names are on the wall are from 2020. So they had lost their life, their family, found out about this project and they reached out to me and wanted me to add their loved one's name. And to have your mom there, mm-hmm. you're kind of seeing it through her prism, a person who you says is not necessarily artistic and what have you. What, what, what was her reaction to that? She was just like, I wanted to be a part of this because it touched me. And you know, as, as someone who's a nurse, she's familiar with loss and walking people through mm-hmm. these different types of loss. And she wanted to have that connection to this project. And as we started to talk more, she revealed to me why we left St. Louis. You know, it was motivated by not just the weather here and just wanting to leave the Midwest, but uh, my older brother had a friend who was shot and killed and my mother was fed up. She says she sat with that mother and two weeks later, we were on the road to Miami. I was like, we never had this conversation. I never knew but we had the conversation when we needed to have it. Our guest today is the artist and activist Shire Riggins. She was recently named one of the new artists in residence at Oolite Arts in South Beach. We were talking about this effect, you know, this really focus of your work. Your your work is is dead on and dead focused on um, things that are of a social justice nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you you get into the issues of gun violence. And, and I wanted to ask you, because I know that our producers were talking with you about that beforehand, about how there was an early moment in your life where you really realized the effect that gun violence was having having on us as a country, as individuals. You mm-hmm. know, will you tell me about that time? Yeah, um, I think I was sixteen or seventeen, and um, someone very close to me, by the name of James Reed the Third, was murdered. Um, he was. We met at New World School of the Arts in downtown Miami. He was a dancer and he went away to college and he was home on a break during the summer and he was he was killed. And it was the first funeral I had attended. And um Wow, and it's like your mom you moved you guys down here to get away from that and it's uh, and it's there's no way to avoid it. There's no way to avoid it. It's everywhere. Yeah. And you wouldn't expect someone who who attends a performing arts school to fall victim to gun violence but he did which is like i think it's worth you know especially if you're from a community where black and brown you're like i'm sure they did something to deserve that that's the unspoken part right absolutely and now you're talking about here's a performing arts kid who's a dancer and it's Mm -hmm. like you almost hate that you have to make uh concessions for the victim like to prove that they are not worthy of getting right 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 because when people when people hear that someone died to gun violence, they automatically assume that there was something that you did to cause that to happen to mm. you. But there was nothing that he did. And, you know, being a teenager at the time, I couldn't really process what was happening. It took me decades. To pro- I'm still processing. And to have this experience with so many of my peers who are now 
professional creatives, we talk about that to this day and it informs our practice because we didn't have the language to really talk about what was happening then. So we try to use the language we have now and, and really understand what's happening to our young people that we engage with through our practices. Right. I'm curious when that, if you have this thing and it's living quietly in the background as you're creating art, mm-hmm. um, how it kind of comes back into back into your life. And uh, uh, it seems like the, uh, the, the shooting of, uh, of King Carter, a, little, a young boy in, in 2016, a little, a little boy mm-hmm. got a baby. Ca- caught by a stray bullet mm-hmm. and was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I understand it, um, yeah, and his his killer was uh, was uh, was uh, sentenced in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that did that unlock something in you and deciding to focus then your artwork in this direction? Yes, because um, in 2016, uh, my son Cipher was the same age, and every time that I saw King's face on because his death was heavily covered by the media. Every time I saw that baby's face on TV, I saw my baby's face. And so what I do when I don't have the language, I retreat to my practice. Mm. And I just responded. It was just this visceral response to what's happening. And then I wanted to tell his story. And in researching what had happened to him, I came across so many other victims whose stories didn't receive the same type of media attention. So I was like, I have a responsibility to tell these stories too. Yeah. And that's that's one of the roots of my practice is responsibility mm. to truth. I know this is emotional for you and I you know I, I know that um, it's moving you, you know, um but I think that that's so much art is like that, right? It's rooted in kind of finding that one piece. And, and it sounds like for you, it's always been finding the thing that's hard to put into words and then putting it into art. Absolutely. It's exactly that. Because there's only so much you can say. There's mm-hmm. only so much you can say to people to get them to understand what's happening around them. Sometimes they have to see a, vis- a visual representation of what's going on. Sometimes you have to see it that way. And to see the face of a baby, it causes a different type of reaction Mm. because this is a baby. We can all all relate to a six-year-old. We were that age. We see kids all the time. And we never imagined that this would happen to a baby. I wonder... When you deal with something like that, and it's you wrap your you wrap your your work around that, and you spend so much time delving into it, that does it give you kind of ideas about how you stop from having to do that kind of work? In other words, how do we how do we get to the point where where we're not we're not dealing with so much with this kind this level of gun violence in our streets? You know? Abs- you in know, our lives, not in our streets, in our lives. Where you know. In, in in telling these stories and having conversations with families, I have to respond to what, what they say. Mm. And I always ask, what what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say in, in relation to this work? Because I always talk about how I display the work and I, I speak in, in, in unison with families. I don't speak for families. I try to elevate the things that they've said to me. And... Um, Families want the stories to be told 
And as long as I can tell the stories, I will. I, I do have moments where I have to s- step away because I, c- I carry every person with me. Mm-hmm. So I have to practice self-care mm-hmm. because I do have to be present for you know my two kids and my family. So I, I do have to take breaks because I want to be effective in the stories that I tell. So knowing when to step away for a second, I, I have to I have to be aware of that. And people always ask me about that. So how do you do that? How how do you how do you, t- you give yourself t- space? Because so much art is is bleeding into the work, right? Mm-hmm. And then what does it look like when you step when I away? step away? Yeah. Listen, I <laughs> I am fortunate enough to have a community of really ridiculous friends that I've known for decades, <laughs> and <laughs> we're all creative, so we all understand obstacles that we face and we just meet and just laugh you know and and really try to hold on to to the things that motivate us to create so i'm just so fortunate to have a a community of creatives i'm curious about this mix both of your community of creatives but also the community where you live right Mm -hmm. you're you're you stay down in the ghouls right yeah which is kind of like uh we'd call it like unincorporated homesteadish area right yes Mm -hmm. um tell me about the community and whether like how that because you have to be inspired by where you live uh, in part right yeah yeah you know the community that i that i live in i've i've gotten to know a lot of families based on you know my practice and going to community meetings and going to meetings of organizations that are based down south so having a conversation about art is bridging a connection with us because there aren't a lot of creatives down there. Mm. A lot of artists uh, kind of move to a more central location in the county mm-hmm. just to have access to institutions. Right. We, don't, we don't have a lot of creative institutions down south. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk about what I do and how others can participate in what I do. And I think in 2017, I took a group of mothers who um, who had lost their children to gun violence. And I had told these these uh, their children's stories and I had an exhibition and I brought them to the exhibition so they could speak on behalf of their children. And it was their first art exhibition. Wow, their know? first exposure their to art. first exposure to art, something that I live with every day. And it's people that are your neighbors, essentially. Yes, my So neighbors. it makes it extra special. Right. Absolutely. And and having them understand that this is a different way for you to have a platform, you know, being in community with creatives and because we're all part of the community and being aligned with them and, and sharing stories because there are all these parallels in our lives. How, how did that affect your like your connection to your particular your particular neighborhood, <laughs> your streets, you know, your neighbors, you know, I, I always like to participate in new experiences because not only was that a new experience for them, it was a new experience for me because it's when you live with something every day, you can kind of become immune to the freshness mm. of being able to create and have work on display in a space. So it's it's a refresher for me and it it reinforces the power of collaborating hmm. you know we have to interact with different pockets of our community because we make up the whole right i'm curious about your kids cuz you mentioned <laughs> uh early on about having them kind of make space from your work mm-hmm. to make sure that you're not uh uh that you're also making time for them right and keeping and and they're also part of this community where you've raised them where you where you grew up right mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about that, about the decision to kind of raise your kids where you grew up, like how important that is to you and and how they perceive mom, the artist. <laughs> they think mommy's boring, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's par for the course for kids. Yes, they yeah. are over it. Yeah. You know, the the community is very familiar with my kids because, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I've brought them to a lot of events. I bring them to openings, but now they, ca- they can't be bothered. You know, uh, my daughter turned 11 last week, and she is a budding artist. She is interested in art. Is she also painting on all the furniture with, <laughs> the, with mom's nail polish? Yes. She uses acrylic paint because that's what I have in my house. And um, she, this is what I like. I'm not pushing her to be a creative. Mm. She just has the space and opportunity and materials, and she's using them. And uh, real talk, I'm trying to talk my baby out of it, but she is convinced that this is what she wants to do, so I have to support her. And, you know, my son is more pragmatic. He likes to argue. He likes video games. And he's very athletic. So it's it's almost like this cyclical type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom trying to talk me out of being an artist and me trying to talk my, babe, my daughter out of being an artist. <laughs> and, you know, I, I like that they can see what I'm doing how I'm engaging with people, mm-hmm. what I'm talking about in my work. Because before I had a studio at Oolite, one time for Oolite, before I had a studio there, I was working out of my home. And there, that's why there were materials everywhere. So they saw what I was making. They would ask me, mommy, who was that person? And I remember my daughter had to be maybe four or five because she wasn't in school yet. And I was working on a portrait and it was of this this child named Amir Castro. And she said to me, Mommy, can I play with him? And then I had Oof. all these feelings about she's too young to know the scope of this work. But her recognizing that this is a child, this is what I want people to see. This is a child, you know. So wow, my, how, my kids are keeping me honest. How did you answer that? Because at, at four years old, I mean, folks always always think, you know, like, do I tell so-and-so that grandma's passed and mm-hmm. what does that mean? And do I we go to the funeral and you're having those thoughts, but also you're in the creation of this art. How did you answer that? Thing? I told my baby, I said, this baby's not here anymore. And what happened was not too long after that, I was invited to bring my kids to a celebration of life for Amir mm-hmm. because his mother wanted to, to bring people together, even though he wasn't there and celebrate his birthday. So I brought my kids and there were other kids there. So we were celebrating life and honoring Amir there. So they had their first their first kind of we had our first conversation about loss mm. then. Now we can have more detailed conversations because some of their classmates I've told the stories of their parents and you know, I try to get them to understand this is what your classmate is dealing with. Do not ask your classmate about this, but you understand loss. And in having conversations with my kids, it it gets me to the point where I'm used to having conversations with other people because there are people who are unaware of what's happening in the community. And when they ask me about this work, I have to be able to explain it in a way that is new for them, you know. Yeah, because if you can create empathy without having, without requiring sympathy, right? right how do you get people to feel and to empathize and to 
move in directions that causes change mm -hmm. without having to say, oh, I have to experience this particular kind of loss in my life to be able to empathize. Right. That's that's a that's right. the big one. That's the that's the move, right? That's the that's, that's the, the goal. Yes, yes. And you know, there are so many parents that I interact with who never thought about the loss of their child, even though it was happening around them. You know, so there's a different type of realization when things happen to you. But I don't want to. I don't want people to have to get there. We we can we can be aware without something happening to us. You know, because when you're grieving and you experience loss, the way that you navigate the world is is very, very different. You um, you won an award from Ulite Arts. Ulite is the, the foundation uh, on Miami Beach. Um, mm -hmm. And you won an, an award from Ulite Arts. Um, and it's a social justice award. Yes, I, I did. Mean, tell me about that. I guess that's got to be really... Uh, that people recognize your work and, and ULED mm -hmm. in general, it sounds like they helped you continue to create, right? Yes, they absolutely did. And in 2020, you know, I was working on the Say Their Names mural mm -hmm. and it was completely funded by donations from people. I, I did fundraising. I, I made posts on social media saying, I'm doing this. Can you send me money? And uh, I found out uh, maybe in the fall of 2020, that they created the social justice award and i was the first recipient and it came at a time when you know i didn't know how i was going to fund anything how i was, was going to continue to so support myself or my children because everything was locked down and when you do work like this people don't really want to engage because it's sad and people don't want to be reminded of sadness and for them to decide we're going to create this award and you're going to be the first recipient, it was validation. It was, uh, it was just what I needed because I always have these thoughts about stepping away from this body of work to focus on something else. So it was confirmation that this is what I'm supposed to do and they are interested in it. And other people wanted me to talk about this work that I do. And, you know, social justice work, it isn't always included in mainstream art just because of the content, right. you know. Our guest today is the artist and activist Shire Riggins. She was recently named one of the new artists in residence at Ulite Arts in South Beach. You focus a lot of your work on social justice, but that's not the, the totality of your work. Mm -hmm. um, there is so much more of it, like we mentioned you know, your kids finding all these found ingredients as you're as you're making this mixed media things. And I look at like your beautiful braids that you have today mm -hmm. and braid uh, like black hair braiding is plays a part in at least one of your pieces. Right. And, and in a Absolutely. bunch of your work. Tell me about that. Yes. Listen, I, I started braiding my own hair when I was young and I did these braids. Um, they are it, nice and they are not short. <laughs> no, there is a lot like to braid. <laughs> I'm, I'm very expressive with my hair, as uh, black women often are. It is an art form. And just learning to really embrace your hair and to, to take care of your hair, it is, it, it, it is an art form. And a, a lot of my work is really labor intensive. And I wanted to really incorporate what else I do with my hands into my practice. And, and I... 
at, as a black woman, I, I want to tell stories of black women and this journey with hair, because it is a journey, just really embracing particular styles that weren't necessarily considered um, appropriate, maybe 10, 15 years ago that are really being embraced by other cultures now. Did you did you feel that uh, growing up? That, Absolutely. That your hair couldn't be a certain way? Absolutely. You, what kind of blowback did you get for that? Listen, I, I relax, my hair was relaxed at, as in permanently straightened mm -hmm. up until um, I got pregnant with my, my son because I stopped relaxing my hair because of the chemicals. And it, I stopped cold turkey because it's one of those things that once you do it, you have to continue to do it or you have to just cut off all your hair. And um, I really took a leap of faith because I had been thinking about it. And it was something that not a lot of black women wanted to do back then. And um, there was so much money being invested in countering what your natural hair looks like. And we were playing a major role in buying these products to counter what our natural hair looks like so, at a cost. So you had a lot going on. In other words, you're, you, you're pregnant with your, with one of your <laughs> yes. kids. Yeah. You're thinking about this, these issues of like, why, why are we made to, so you, mm -hmm. to, to be this way. And, mm -hmm. and that leads to the creation of art. Tell me yes. about the kind of art that you create from that. So it, it started with, I, I was selected as one of the artists chosen to participate in Art on the Plaza hmm. at Mocha, North Miami. Okay. And um, I just wanted to do some work that was black AF. And hmm. they allowed- Vanta black work, man. <laughs> That's what yes. I'm talking about. And they allowed me the space to do it. And I had been envisioning braids suspended from- from these 70 foot palm trees for a while. And oh, is that what you did? That's it's what I did. Braids suspended from 70 They were foot suspended from those 70 foot palm trees. So the wind blows? Oh, yes. Tell me about how it interacts visually like that. Oh, yes. The wind was blowing. They were adorned with bamboo earrings and all kind of metal and beads and fabricated fabric into them. And each tree represented a different woman in my family because I wanted to tell the story of legacy and lineage. And what was so amazing was the response from the community there because braiding, it, it crosses cultures. So while I was installing the work, people would come in and say, what are you doing? So then we would have a conversation about braiding. And, um, you know, I, I really liked the, the, the interactive part of creating because while I'm learning about you, you're learning about me. And there's this mutual exchange of of stories, you know, because my work, I'm always trying to tell stories in my work. And and, it's, and just, your work is, is out there. It's not in a museum where often we're told don't touch, right? Right. I mean, you shouldn't touch in the museum unless they specifically tell you. Mm -hmm. But your work is the opposite of that. It's out in the world where, mm -hmm. like you said, you, you painted a mural and you wanted to make sure people could physically t reach up and touch every name yes and now you're talking about something that people can physically interact with and yes yeah. yes because Why is I that important to you yeah art should be accessible hmm. and you know there that these institutions do play a role in access to art but oftentimes you have to pay a fee hmm. to get into an institution mm -hmm. and what if i don't want to pay a fee what if i just want to stand outside and engage with work and you know I, I really like that. I'm, I'm trying to really eliminate these barriers associated with interacting with art because there shouldn't be just a specific pocket of the community that can afford to access art. Right. You mentioned that the, there are specific women in your life that 
inspired those those braids on mm-hmm. pumps. What what's the name of that piece? It was called To What Lengths. To What Lengths. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about some of those women that you wanted to honor. So I honored my grandmother. Tell me about your grandmother. Shout out her name. <laughs> One time for Helen. <laughs> One time. Um, uh, so my grandma lives in St. Louis, and she, she's still with us. Um, my grandmother, my mother, Carolyn, um, her tree had uh, blonde braids, and she told me she wanted her tree to have blonde braids because she had this <laughs> fabulous blonde afro back in the 70s, and, you know, it was honoring that, you know, her experimenting with color. Um, How and did then, your mom, as someone who didn't get art, so to speak, mm-hmm. or certainly get it with you to see, to be able to witness, interact with something like that? Mm-hmm. What was that like? You know, you know it, it was it was like validating for me because it was always this this back and forth struggle and i was just like i'm meant to do this i have to do this and she was just like you don't have to do anything so now that you know i'm in my 40s and she sees that this is here to stay it's wonderful to see her to finally be like okay okay i'm with it you know um and it's something that all artists experience there's always that one person that doesn't want you to be an artist and um, so to see her really, really support my practice is so wonderful for me. I'm curious what that, what kind of interactions that led to when you mentioned, you know, you're out there creating these things and you're in person and you're, and people are coming up to you as you're creating this thing. What, were there, were there conversations that still stick with you today about, <laughs> from meeting people then? Yes, I, I did. <laughs> I did a hair writing workshop and there was this woman and her daughter and uh the father he wasn't there but he's a hairstyle he's a hairstylist and this this young girl used to have this really long braid down her back and so she finally allowed her father to cut the braid and so she was there at this workshop to really kind of revisit this braid that she lost so we had this whole conversation about how hair braiding and how she would only let her father touch her hair and i was like black folks do that too girl we'll let everybody touch our hair <laughs> so you know it, it was just like this this merging of cultures and understanding that we have so much in common you know and then while we're having this conversation we're both braiding you know, and that's what happens when you're having your hair taken care of. You, you're you vulnerable. You say things. You trust this person. So it was all of that happening in that workshop. I'm curious what, what how that's... Um how that's manifested itself with your kids, right? Like you, you obviously said you had your hair straight for as long as you can remember, mm-hmm. uh, hair relaxed. And uh, what is what is their hair like? And you know, do they? Are, are, which way do they go on it? Listen, my son has a, an afro that we had to fight about because I was like, if you're gonna have an afro, you have to take care of your hair. Yeah, it can't be all it can't be all janky, right? No, you can't be janky. Not my child. <laughs> no. And I was like, look, you gotta you have to comb it. It is a task. And, and, you know, for a long time, I wouldn't let him grow his hair out, but I finally relented. And now he has this really beautiful Afro and my daughter also has natural hair and she expresses herself with different color braids. Right now her braids are like this ocean color. And, um, you know, I'm just really trying to get them to really embrace what their blackness and what they look like and understanding that this is beautiful and we have to care for it. Right. How is... I'm curious, you know, there's there's so many like inflection points in life, but seeing your kids kind of interact like that, does that affect your art? Does that affect different pieces that you've thought about or have went out and created or or just change the way 
you think about what you want to work on next, you know? Absolutely. Let me tell you something. Kids will keep you honest mm -hmm. because they don't care about art jargon. They don't care about your portfolio. All they care about is this work that they see in front of them. And, you know, when I make work, my kids see the whole process and I, I, I appreciate their feedback. If they like the work, I'm rocking with it. And if they don't like it, I'm going to adjust. Oh, interesting. You, yeah. All right. Yeah. That's funny because it seems like we're, we always try to impress our kids and our parents, and mm -hmm. they're the ones who are least impressed by us all the time. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about some of the work you created recently. Um, I know you, you made a piece for um, this new exhibit at the Frost Museum at FIU. Yeah, that, that exhibition. So the exhibition was last year, right? And it traveled. It went from FIU to Winter Haven. And uh, now it's traveling again, but my work is not included in that show. I see. But I was approached by the curator at FIU one time for Amy. I love you, Amy. She approached me and um, four other sisters, black women, to create books responding to um, the massacre at Rosewood. And uh, this exhibition at FIU was marking the centennial of the massacre and we were given the opportunity to just express ourselves. The only requirement was that it had to be a book and uh, the books were included in the exhibition and the one that went to Winter Haven. And what was so fascinating was her being deliberate about which artists to include. Mm -hmm. She included all black women and then giving us a platform to tell what this, what making these books was like because a number of the sisters hadn't heard of the massacre at Rosewood. So oh, wow. we had that conversation. And then the journey of creating that work and me being the elder of the artists, of course I had heard of the massacre. And then my work is rooted in telling stories like this. So us having this dialogue about that journey was really important for me because they were, they were processing these emotions in that moment. Hmm. And th this work was included in that exhibit last year. Yes. Uh, at the at the exhibit uh, at FIU last yes, year. Yes. Yes. And um, so yeah, we should be clear about that. We had that. I think we had. I think I had that saying earlier that it was going on now, but it was last year. Yeah, it was last year. I'm curious. What then? What are you working on now? What are the things that are? What are the things that are that are interesting to you now? Um, you know, uh, you have this opportunity where you're at Ulite Arts, and mm -hmm. you know they have different residency programs where they, you know, they help uh, help artists you know give them space physical space even to create right. and how is that how is that inspired what you're thinking about next well i'm fortunate to be one of one of the artists to have a physical space because um there's a scarcity in studio spaces for artists there are much more artists than there are spaces so i am fortunate enough to have a physical space hmm. and what what i want to do is continue um to explore these bodies of work and to really incre increase my scale. Hmm. Um, Talk to me about that and increasing scale. I want to go very, very large. Uh, right now, my largest pieces in this body of work with the braids, it's called Rewoven. The largest pieces are about three feet. They're circular, but I want to go to maybe nine, 10 feet or even larger. And I couldn't do that at home. So I'm thankful to have a space where I can I can play around with scale and see if it works with what I'm trying to do. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, abundance is the uh, is the word of the year for us here. Yes, abundance. More, more <laughs> and so having the space to having the physical space to do that mm -hmm. is 
it affects your ability to create the art thing. Yes, yeah. a- and they provide artists with a housing stipend, and this is not this is not the norm, and. A lot of artists, even post-2020, have had to give up their studio spaces because they couldn't pay the rent at their house and the rent at their studio. So at Oolite, they're giving us $1,000 to go towards our rent, and I'm like, thank you yeah, because it is needed. Right. I'm curious about this this idea of scale when you think about um, the work that you create. So mm-hmm. talk, to, help describe for me a little bit about what the, these, these large circular works that you are. Is related to braiding? Yes. So the the work that I had that I used for Mocha's Art on the Plaza, it has evolved into these portraits of sorts where I I had been seeing circles for months and I'm 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 really fixated on on the shape of a circle and what it means to legacy and lineage and culture. And so I've been arranging the braids in these circular pieces and where they end is where they end and where they begin is where they begin. And um, I want to really scale up and continue to work with materials and just really just this tactile nature of materials. And I'm playing around with like wood and canvas and sewing. And it's, it's a different way for me to think. One of one artist that I really admire, his name is Gonzalo Fuenmayor. He visited uh, my studio uh, last year and he said that these works are paintings. And I was like, but they're sculptures. He was like, no, these are paintings and you're still painting portraits. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. Wow. You know, so it, that's, that's the importance of having a community of artists that you trust and that you can talk to and that get your work. So I, 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 these are sculptural paintings and portraits of people, and that's and that's part of that's part of the art too. Is like is you make a statement about a thing, and then it influences the way that you think of in the future, and that influences future art. Yes, yes, and then it's this constant learning and growing and evolving your practice because I always want to be able to evolve in the work that I create. When this painter, um, what was his name again? His name is Gonzalo. 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 Fuenmayor. When he says, when he gives you that piece of feedback, how does that, how does that change your work? Like, how does that flip a switch for you? Because it sounds like it did. It did. And, you know, I love him. So I appreciated his feedback because not all feedback is good feedback. But I love him. Um, it, it, we had spent so much time talking about our practices because mm-hmm. our two-dimensional work is aligned. He works in charcoal and then I was working in charcoal at the time. But now I'm working in something else. And he was also exploring scale. So we would have these conversations about what that means to do it with your physical body and how to translate what you're trying to do on the surface. So for him to say that these are paintings, I really respected that because he understood where I wanted my work to go, you know? Right. Shire, uh, tell us uh, before we go where folks can see your work. Okay, so I am very active on social media, and I'm accessible on social media. You can see my work there. Give us your handle. It's Vantablack305 on IG. And um, if you want to come visit my studio, I'm at Ulite. Hit me up. Maybe maybe I'll let you in so you can visit. Right on. <laughs> Shire, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Hour with us. It was a real pleasure. It was. It was great. Thank you for having me. Our guest today was the artist Shire Riggins. She goes by the name Vantablack. 
She was recently named one of the new artists in residence at Oolite Arts in South Beach. And that's Sundown for Wednesday, January 31st. Leslie Ovaya Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, the artists behind a local icon are partners in art and in life. It's the couple who created this year's poster for the Coconut Grove Arts Festival. They'll join us in studio. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. W.